0: Our actions are important, but they come from a heart that is truly following Jesus. And that tug-of-war that we have in our lives really leads us back to asking that question. Who is on the stool of our lives? In Scripture, there is a great story about this, and so if you have your Bibles, open them up to uh, Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10 uh, tells about a story that many of us are familiar with, but I want to compare it at the end of the message to another story that many of us are not probably quite as familiar with. Uh, and so Mark chapter 10, verse 17, you'll see that Jesus is approached by what's described as a rich young ruler who seemed to have life kind of all figured out. But in his quest for figuring life all out, he also wanted to make sure that he had all of his bases covered. And and I, I I don't know, we don't know the man by name, but he hasn't certainly been a follower of Jesus. He's He's been more of a fan because I get the impression that he's probably observing Jesus at a distance when Jesus has taught and he knows kind of the good things that he said. In fact, he calls him a good teacher. And so then on the second part of verse 17, it says this, it says, um, Good teacher, this is as the man came up and knelt before Jesus. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he's asking this question, I think, hoping to get some sort of a checklist kind of a response of making sure that he's got all of his bases covered, of of kind of more wanting just a quick answer for Jesus to kind of shout out, kind of, okay, well, you do this, 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 and the man says, okay, great, and he's on his way. In fact, he probably would have fit in really well with the instant gratification society that we live in today. I mean, I, I don't know if we even realize how much of an instant gratification society we have here in the United States. Uh, I was reminded of this a a number of years ago when um, Yakov Smirnoff um, made some observations. He's kind of a comedian years ago. Um, When he um, came here from Russia and was comparing the United States to Russia, and he said he was amazed by the variety of instant products that we have in our grocery stores here in the United States. He says, on my first shopping trip, I, I saw powdered milk. And all you had to do was add water, and poof, you get milk. And he says, I went down another aisle, and I saw powdered orange juice. He says, all you have to do is add water, and poof, you get orange juice. And he went down another aisle, and he saw baby powder. And he thought to himself, man, what a country this is. <laughs> See, that, that is kind of the country we have, isn't it? I mean, we see something, we want it. We see something, let's go get it. We see something, you know, uh, if you want your food warm, you microwave it real quick. If you're hungry, you go pick something up at a fast food. If you don't want to take the time to prepare food. And we, we live in an instant gratification kind of society, in a society that maybe even more so kind of goes through a system and goes through checklists to make sure we're okay with things. I think this is what the man kind of wanted, what he was wanting. He wanted what Jesus was offering, that is eternal life, but he still wanted to keep everything else that he had in his life before that. So he wanted these kind of these checklists to go through and make sure that he was good as well and that he was okay. And so when Jesus sees that the man is operating on that kind of a level, Jesus kind of goes along with it. And so in verse 19, here's what he says. He says to the man, you know the commandments. Do not murder Do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and your mother. And it's interesting because Jesus gives him basically commandments 5 through 9 of the 10 commandments. He doesn't start in commandments 1 through 4 because commandments 1 through 4 relate with our relationship to God. If you go back and look at Exodus chapter 20, you'll see 1 through 4, the 10 commandments go this way in our relationship with God. And then 5 through the rest kind of go this way in how we relate to one another. And so Jesus knows that he's on that level, and so Jesus addresses him on that level and meets him right there. And you'd think that Jesus was going to continue on with this, but it's as though the man interrupts. And in verse 20, he says this, he says to Jesus, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. In other words, Jesus, I know all those kinds of things, and I've done it. I'm a good person too. I've kept the list. Check, 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 check. Now, don't miss the next verse, because I think this is so key to the whole passage. Verse 21, the first part of it, says, And Jesus, looking at him, what's it say? Love him. He loved him. See, that's the key. Jesus didn't want just a big checklist. Jesus wanted more than that. Jesus knows that fans keep their relationship with him on a checklist kind of basis, but Jesus wants so much more than that. And this first part of verse 21 shows us where true fans operate, that that's the level of intimacy that Jesus wants with his followers. The biblical word for intimacy in the Old Testament is the word know, which is K-N-O-W. Interesting, in our mission statement, we have that, helping people take their next steps in knowing Jesus and making him known. And then Mike talked about the serving uh, part of our four words, but the first one is know. Know, then grow, then serve, and share. And so the the Hebrew word for this intimacy that we're talking about here is that word No, that's first used used in a context of a relationship in Genesis chapter 4. And you can look up here on the screen. In Genesis chapter 4, the ESV translates that, Adam knew his wife Eve. That's how it's first used in a relationship. But from this knowing of his wife, they are gotten or begotten a son, which is Cain. And so actually, the NIV, I think, translates it a little bit easier for us to understand what that truly means, and that is that in the NIV, it says, Adam lay with his wife Eve. In fact, the original Hebrew word for this word know is yada, Y-A-D-A, yada is how we would say it today. That's the word to know, and the full definition of it is to be known and be known completely. There, there's really really where it's getting down to, to be known and to know completely. And so this, this yada moment that we have here between this husband and this wife has this intimate connection on every level that God intended for us to happen. But the emphasis here on this first recorded you know, sexual encounter seems to be more about intimacy than it is any sort of a sexual type of a pleasure, Because there uh, there are other Hebrew words that could have been used for the physical act of sex or procreation as God intended for it to be. But here, it's this word that means intimate and connecting. That's the yada word that is used. In fact, one Hebrew scholar called it a mingling of the souls. That's how it's kind of described. And it goes beyond just the physical or the procreation kind of an act. It's to know and to be known completely. In fact, if you want to kind of talk about it on a relationship basis, it, it's probably the difference between um, dating couples and married couples who have been together for a long time, right? Have you ever been out to restaurants and uh, played the game, maybe as you're on a date and sitting with someone, played the game, um, are they married or are they dating? Have you played that game before, right? You can look around at the people and you can see by their interactions, are they married or are they dating, right? Because when they're dating, what are they doing? Oh, they're laughing. Ha ha ha, that's so funny. You know, you they're engaging one another, right? I mean, I mean they're really locked into things, right? Mmm, yeah. And then those little moments of pause, mmm, and you know, you kind of flick your hair back and try and yeah, yeah. You know what I mean, right? That that's the whole dating scene that's going on there, right? But when they're married, it's a little different, isn't it? Okay? A L- little different, not quite so talkative. Not quite so, you know, gregarious and such, but there's a deeper level of comfortability to that relationship. It's not as though, you know, they're trying to hide these awkward moments or trying to, you know, work on a next date kind of thing. There's, there's, there's this in their marriage relationship. There's more of a comfort within the relationship. And, and then there's this rare breed. I don't know if you've ever seen this rare breed that are really special to watch. They're usually older, right? And uh, you could go to maybe UJ's or Karo's, uh and find some of these folks, okay? 4.30 in the afternoon is about when they usually come out, right? Right? You know what I'm talking about, okay? You, you've seen them too, right? They don't say a word to each other. Someone in the 8 o'clock service shouted out, it's because they can't hear each other, but I won't, I won't say that. Seriously, that happened. Someone said that. Someone said that in the 8 o'clock service. But they sit there in silence, don't they? Which which can seem kind of sad at first when you compare the activity, you know, the couples who are talking, 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 and then they're not. But what that couple's doing is they're communicating in silence. They're connecting in silence. They know one another. Just being together is ample space for that kind of a connection. They they share a bond of knowing each other. Now, look at this back in this context of of yada, which is said in Genesis chapter 4, verse 1. Watch this because this is very interesting. If you trace the usage of yada in the Old Testament, you'll find over and over again that it is used to describe God's relationship with us. That's what kind of a relationship he wants to have with us, a yada type of relationship, an intimate type of relationship. And it makes sense that the illustration in scripture time and time again is, is a marriage analogy. That, that's what that really is. In Scripture, marriage is held up as that relationship between us and God. You see it in the Old Testament with Gomer and Hosea. You see it in Paul talking about the bride of Christ. You see it at the very end of Scripture in Revelation 21 where it talks about, uh, Behold, a new heaven and a new earth. And now God is coming to be with his people as a bride who is beautifully dressed for her groom. Look it up in Romans, uh, Revelation chapter 21 last analogy of God coming to earth and coming back to take his people, and it's a bridegroom type of relationship. It's a marriage type of relationship. So what happens within that marriage relationship? You yada. You connect back and forth. That's how God wants to know us, not physically, but intimately. That's how much God wants to know us. Which, by the way, you know, kind of a little side note on this. Um, is it any wonder that Satan has gone so hard after sexual addictions? Is it, is it, is it any wonder why Satan has gone so hard to break up marriages? He's gone so hard, um, uh, about sexual exclusiveness and saying, ah, oh, you don't need that type of thing and just cheapened it. I mean, I mean, that marriage relationship is what God holds up as His relationship with us and to have it be that the church today inside the church as well as people outside the church have the same divorce rate. That inside the church we don't look any different. We want to sit on our own stool and do our own thing. And yet God is saying, let me have more control over your life. Let me have more control over your marriage. Let me have more control over where you're going with life. Let me, let me, let me. And yet it's not just about the physical act of what we do in the action. It's really more about the intimacy that he desires first. Because when we're intimate with him and he knows us and we know him, that makes turning this over to him so much easier to do. Is it any wonder That Satan has been targeting marriages and ripping them down because God wants that part of your life. It represents that kind of intimacy with him. In fact, the same word and the connection that is to be between a husband and wife is used to describe how much God wants to know you. In other words, your relationship to Jesus is not a weekend fling. Let's be honest about it. It's not a weekend fling. It's not a casual encounter. It's a yada. It's a deep knowing. It's an intimacy. That's what it is. In the Old Testament, David in Psalm 139, one of the most famous psalms that is there, David, six times in Psalm 139, uses this word, yada. It's on your outline, or you can look up on the screen. He's saying, you know, you know, you know. Let me just read, oh Lord, you have searched me, and you know me. You know when I sit down, and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. Where should I go from your spirit, or where shall I free from your presence? It goes on to say, for you form me, uh, you form my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it well. Search me, O oh God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. I mean, there, David is just illustrating this. He's saying, God, you know me. You know me. I want you to know me. I want to have that relationship with you. I want to know you. God, you know how I feel. God, you know how I hurt. God, you know how I think. And when we know him, it makes so much more sense out of life, doesn't it? In fact, yesterday, Pastor Mike was talking about the graffiti that their team was doing. We, uh, uh, I had a team with me as well that we got on Pershing Avenue and um, Pacific Avenue. We went underneath the bridges. And we came across a picture that was very interesting. Nate Voyer showed this to me. Um, go ahead and show it there. Um, great artwork. I mean, I'm this, some people got some talent going on down there. I, you know, they're wasting it down there. But that's what they have. They have some good talent. And it's interesting what this quote says. It says, Please tell me... I have value and worth. Isn't that interesting? That's a cry for help. That's a cry for someone to be exposed to this. That's a cry for someone to be able to read Psalm 139 and say, Wow, God values me. I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. And that's a cry for people to hear the message that you have. That's a cry for people to be here in this place and hear the message that we share, God's word. That's a cry for us to be involved. David says, you know me that deeply, and he invites us to know God that deeply as well. Now, for some of you, that is liberating. That is freeing. That somebody knows you that intimately. However... Some of you, um, that can be a little frightening because there are some things in our life that we're not proud of. All of us have areas in our lives that we're not proud of. All of us have something that we're even trying to keep hidden and we don't want God to come over to that place. All of us have things that keep us on the stool, don't we? We like to be here. We like to sit here. And that's why... Evolution is so popular because if I admit that there's a creator, then he created me, then he knows me. I don't like going down that path. That's a little scary. I'd rather just say there is no God so that I can sit on this stool. For those of us who know Him and love Him and serve Him, it can be a scary place to give that over to Him as well, can't it? In fact, in the videos that we were watching this week in our community groups, Kyle Adaman was going through the hospital. Some of you know the story as you see those videos. And he was talking about our lives, uh, and, and comparing our lives really and saying, does God have every access to all the rooms in your lives, in your, in your life? Does He have access to every area? It'd be a little bit like if you had a home or a house, and you kept one closet just kind of off on its own, every place else, Jesus, you can go here, you can go here, Jesus, you can come here, you can come here. Don't go in that closet. That's that's my closet. That's my time. That's my stool. I can sit on my stool in that closet. You know what's amazing, though? Is that even if you haven't allowed Jesus into that place... That he knows about what the place is like and he still chooses to love you. He knows what's in that closet, but he still chooses to love us. In fact, there's nothing that you can do to make him love you anymore. And there's nothing you can do to make him love you any less. Please hear that today. Because it's that grace that God gives to us that I think creates the openness to intimacy that creates us wanting to allow him to sit on that stool. He doesn't judge us. He just loves us. But as I said last week, he does ask for us, our lives, to follow him. He asks for everything in us to be his. And you can fight that, and you can make your life miserable. You can be disobedient and make your life a living hell. But he still loves us, and he invites us to a deeper place of intimacy. That's what followers do. They choose the intimacy. You know, in a couple weeks, um, I'm going to finish this story here in Mark chapter 10 of this rich young ruler and kind of see where his life went and what he did. Um, But I I want you to turn over to another passage of Scripture, and it's in Luke chapter 7. Because uh, there's other people who struggled with this fan-follower kind of uh, system that we've been talking about over the last few weeks. And this story has to do with another man in the Bible who who seems to have life going on. He's a lot like the rich young ruler. In fact, he has the head knowledge as well. He and the rich young ruler both call Jesus a good teacher. But they don't have the heart. They don't have the intimacy of the heart and the openness of the heart. They got in the head. Just don't have it in the heart. And so in Luke chapter 7, verse 36, let me kind of set the scene. It says, one of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him, and he went over to the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. Now, we find out later that this man's name is Simon. Simon is a a Pharisee. And he's probably extended this invitation to Jesus after Jesus has taught in a public type of a setting. And so this would have been a little bit of a badge of merit for uh, Simon, to ring in a great teaching rabbi, to hear him teach and say, oh, rabbi, would you come over to my house? Come be a part of my house and I'll invite some people over and you can come in and and dine with me and and I'll eat with you. Only Simon doesn't treat Jesus in a very respectful way. He is doing this more out of a sense of his own pride. He's doing it out of more sense of his own self looking good. He's doing it out of a sense of um of duty rather than devotion. Hear me on that. If giving Christ your life is a duty to you, then it's going to be taken, given back, taking it, given back, taking it, given back. But if it's out of a devotion, if it's out of an intimacy, if it's out of an openness to God, I know you and you know me, that's what allows us to give our lives to Him better. Now, the reason I know that uh, Jesus was being disrespected by Simon is a couple of things. In um, first century dinner etiquette, you would normally, to an honored guest, greet them with a kiss when they walked into your home. If it was someone who was on equal rank with you, then you would greet them with a kiss on their cheek. And if it was somebody with especially high honor, you would actually greet them with a kiss on their hand. And to neglect doing that would be like if I invited you over to my house and you knocked on my door and maybe I just kind of shouted from the kitchen, hey, come on in. And I never looked at you. I never greeted you. I never eye to eye to you. I never gave you a handshake. I never gave you a hug. I never gave you a look in the face. I never gave you a head nod. I never gave you a head nod with a what's up, dude. Any of that kind of stuff. (laughs) Just just didn't even acknowledge you. You just kind of came in and sat and, and nothing came about. Nothing. Which is why, can I just tell you, it is so important for us to have greeters around this church. And for those of you who are a part of that, in fact, if you're not a part of that greeting team and you would like to be, if you want to talk to the person at the Next Step Center right after this service, we're going to have a meeting in a couple of weeks about how to make this a place where we welcome people. Now, you don't have to kiss people on the cheek or their hand, all right? We're not going to go that far, but we'd love for you to take part and be a part of something like that. That was something that happened in the first century dinner etiquette. Let me give you something else that happened in the first century, the Middle Eastern kind of dinner etiquette, and that is when a dinner guest came over, you washed their feet. In fact, it was mandatory before a meal to wash their feet. If you wanted to truly honor them, though, it would be the host who would get down there and wash the person's feet. Or, at least the host would call on a servant to come in. Or, at the very least, you would have a basin of water that you ushered over to them and said, here, you can wash your own feet. Which, by the way, which did Jesus do when he gave his disciples to the Lord's Supper, the Last Supper? He washed their feet. That's why that was so impacting. It's like, wow! Not just a basin or not even having a servant, but Jesus actually got down there and washed our feet. So you would either greet them with a kiss, or you would do all these things. You would greet them with a kiss, you would give them something to wash, or you would wash their feet for them. The last thing that was dinner etiquette in this time, in this day, in this age, was if it was someone of a specially distinguished um, uh, type of status or a distinguished guest, you would anoint their head with oil, probably mainly with olive oil. But when Jesus comes in, there's no kiss that's given. When Jesus comes in, there's no feet that are washed. When Jesus comes in, there's no oil that is poured over his head. And uh, these weren't accidental oversights. It was done quite deliberately. Why? Because as I shared about last week, Pharisees knew the scripture. They knew what should take place. Pharisees knew, probably Simon, by the age he was 10, he had memorized the entire Torah. By the age of 15, he had memorized the entire Old Testament Scripture. He knew Scripture. He knew it back and forth. In fact, he knew the 300 prophecies about the coming Messiah. He just didn't know the coming Messiah was right there in front of him. There he was. And he didn't contemplate it. He didn't, he didn't, he didn't come to know it. He hadn't kissed him on his cheek. He hadn't washed his face. He hadn't anointed his head with oil. Oh, he knew all about Jesus. He just didn't know Jesus. That's where it comes down to, folks. Do we know about Jesus? Or do we truly know Jesus? Go a step further. 36 talks about how Jesus went to the Pharisee's house. Go to verse 37. And behold, a woman of the city... (gasps) <gasps> a woman of a say and, and just in case you don't know who that is what she's like Luke says who was a sinner when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisees house brought an alabaster flask of ointment alright now what's going on here the people see this woman this prostitute This woman of the city come in and they're asking, you can just hear the glances going across the room, what is she doing here? What she had probably done was camped out in the courtyard a little bit, listening in to what was going on inside Simon's house. Here's what was going on inside Simon's house. Let's say that this was a table, which actually makes for a pretty nice first-century table because there were no legs on first-century tables. So it's a little bit like this. This actually has a lip over it too, probably like the table would. What would happen, and I'm sorry if you can't see me up there, but um, I want to just show you what, how they would come. Jesus would be sitting at a table or, or laying, reclining on a table a little bit like this. And so he would have a pillow probably propped here and his feet would be out this way and he would be talking here. So everybody was doing the same thing where their feet would be pointed out and they would all be reclining around that table. Now, why were they doing that? Because your feet smelled, for one, right? That's why not having those feet washed was was not a good thing. Seriously. But but that's just the way that they reclined and they would do that. And um, as that's happening... Maybe she heard him teaching out in the courtyards and knew that he was coming this way and she just got as close as she could to listen. Maybe she even heard him say, as we talked about last week, that anyone could come and follow him and have him be the rabbi for them. Anybody could be his disciple. I don't know exactly what it was, but she shows up and it grows very quiet. In fact, it gets really awkward really quickly because everybody knows who she is and everybody starts to say what is she going to do? I don't know per se how the next part of the story flows just putting some thoughts together and in the Not A Fan book Kyle put some thoughts together as well I have a feeling that she probably walked into that um, room and everybody gasped at Jesus. Everybody, in fact, probably stared at her, trying to stare her away. But Jesus probably looked at her with loving eyes. and probably, probably the eyes of a father looking towards his daughter incredible love. And this woman of the city probably had not been viewed that way ever in her life. I don't know who her dad was. But I bet she didn't have a good relationship with him. And I bet she didn't have any men in her life at this time who would look at her with love. They looked at her with lust. They looked at her with a way of, how can I use you for my benefit? But Jesus was different. And I have a feeling that Jesus looked at her with an incredible smile on his face. A smile that may have made her start to cry. And so as she's crying, she is at the feet of Jesus. And those tears are running down her face. And now they're spilling onto the feet of Jesus. And remember, Jesus' feet are not clean because they weren't washed. And so they're creating muddy streaks running down his feet. And so she says, what can I do? I'll take down my hair and I'll dry off his feet. Now, That was unheard of in this day. For any woman to let her hair down in in front of somebody in this culture was grounds for divorce. You did not let your hair down in front of somebody other than your husband. And So for her to do that was another gasp. (gasps) What's she doing? And she takes her hair and she washes the feet of Jesus. And she dries them. And then she takes this alabaster jar that she probably had around her neck. And it's a perfume that was used in her profession. It was probably used every time she went into someone's home, she probably put one drop on so she could do her act. But here, you get the impression that she is at the feet of Jesus and she takes that jar and she empties it. She doesn't need it anymore. She doesn't need to go back to that lifestyle. She's at the feet of Jesus. And she pours this flask, this jar, at his feet. And she kisses them, and she kisses them, and she kisses them, and she kisses them. She kisses them. Look at Luke seven forty-four. Then turning towards the woman, he said to Simon... Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has wept or wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. But uh, from the time I came in, she has not ceased kissing my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. And in the end, the religious leader with all the knowledge is shown by Luke to be the fan. And the woman of the night, the prostitute who intimately expressed her love for Jesus, is shown to be the follower. So here's my question. Who am I most like in these stories? Am I like the uh, rich young ruler who had all the head knowledge? Am I like Simon the Pharisee who had all the head knowledge? Or am I like the woman of the night who had a heart to say, Jesus, I'm at your feet. Jesus, I pour my heart out for you. How long has it been since perhaps you've poured your heart out before Jesus? Maybe even wept over the things that break his heart. When's the last time you poured yourself before him and cried out with words and tears and said, Jesus, I want to know you more. Know me. I'm open. When's the last time you demonstrated your love for him with some kind of a reckless abandon that says, Jesus, I am all in for you. I'm following you 100%. And again, I'm not asking that you know about Jesus. I'm asking, do you know Jesus? Because if you do, it's a whole lot easier to take yourself and get off this stool and say, Jesus, that's yours. I'm following. That's why we worship here. Because it, makes a connection with us and God. That's, That's why we encourage you to worship at home throughout the day, throughout the week. That's why we encourage you to open up your scripture and see how it speaks to you. I encourage you, read Psalm 139 this week. Think of that picture that was drawn up with the graffiti and painted there. Show me I have value and worth. See how much value and worth God has given you. Fan or follower, who are you today?